0: As we uh, finish up, really, the book of Ephesians, we are looking at the postscript today out of the book of Revelation, and Wes read for us the passage, the paragraphs leading up to the portion we will look at today in chapter 2. If we were able to uh, get on a jet this afternoon and fly to New Orleans and uh, go over to the Achefaliah River, Uh, It's to the uh, west of New Orleans. It's 137 miles long, and it flows into the Gulf of Mexico, and it is a distributary of the Mississippi River. Notice I didn't say tributary. A tributary flows into a major body of water, and a distributary flows out of a major body of water. Even though the uh, Chafalaya, I think I'm pronouncing that correctly, uh, flows out of the Mississippi River, and even though it's only 137 miles long, it is qualified to be the fifth largest river in the world as far as output. Uh, I read the measurements, and I don't understand that kind of math, but anyway, it's the fifth largest river in the world, even though it's quite short in reality. And uh, this uh, river owes all of its strength, to the mighty Mississippi. As a distributary, it doesn't have its own direct water source, as we think about rivers, uh, but it's an overflow of something else, something far more powerful and amazing. And so when the Mississippi is high, the achafalaya is high, and when the Mississippi is low, the achafalaya is low. And uh, whatever the achafalaya accomplishes, it's wholly dependent on something other than itself. And you know what? Grace Point Church, in fact, all churches that believe in the Lord Jesus Christ are like the Achafalia River. Uh, Anything of value that is accomplished by this fellowship uh, is always tied to our source, the power that is beyond us. So if somehow Grace Point Church loses connection with it, her first love, the living word, she loses all power and uh, dries up and empties out. And that's kind of sobering. So when you think of your own spiritual life as a believer in Jesus Christ, and you think of uh, the conglomerate that we are at Grace Point Church and other churches, uh, we are like the Echefaliah River. We depend upon a much more powerful and beneficial source than just ourselves, our own skills. And today, as we come to this passage, we are following up with the letter to the church at Ephesus Remember the last verse out of the book of Ephesians, we looked at this last week, verse 24, chapter 6, where the Apostle Paul is uh, closing this message, this letter, he said, Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with incorruptible love. Uh, That is the idea of an eternality, uh, a a never-ending kind of love that not only the Lord Jesus Christ has for us, which is amazing, but that we, in return, Love the Lord Jesus Christ. But, you know, love can fade. Uh, Maybe you have experienced that in your own life, a faded love, where a love for another person has faded. And uh, maybe you have experienced that, but our love for the Lord Jesus Christ can also fade. And that's the reality that uh, the Apostle John is addressing here under the inspiration of Jesus Christ himself. Remember in the first verse of chapter 1 of Revelation, if you have your copy of Scripture, turn to the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible. And it tells us that it is a revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show to his bondservants the things which must take place. And he sent it and communicated, it, it tells us there, by his angel to the bondservant John. And so uh, this is a different type of literature in the Bible. We were looking in the book of Ephesians, which is a teaching literature It's very structured in that sense and very direct. And also in the Bible, we have poetic literature, such as Psalms and the Song of Solomon. We have historical literature, such as the Gospels and much of the Old Testament. And we have prophetic literature, also called apocalyptic literature, which simply means in times. And the revelation of Jesus Christ to John falls into that category. It's the literature of the apocalypse or the end times. In fact, in the book of Revelation, some people really avoid it because it seems so strange as you read through it. And yet I want to give you a couple of hints here in chapter 1, verse 19. There is the outline of the book of Revelation. Now, we approach scripture with an interpretive process, which means that we interpret things normally, words mean normal things, we interpret it grammatically, in other words, there's rules of grammar, we interpret it historically, in other words, it has a historical context, we interpret it literally, and that means that we take into account figures of speech, and then we interpret it systematically, the Bible cannot contradict itself, does not contradict itself. But in verse 19 of chapter 1, there's an outline of the book of Revelation, which you may find helpful if you pursue to study it. In verse 19, uh, Jesus tells John, therefore, to write the things which you have seen, past tense. That is chapter 1. Chapter 1 are the things which John has seen. He's reported to that. If you read through chapter 1, you can see that he's saying, this just happened to me. This is the vision that I have. This is Jesus Christ who revealed himself to me and gave me these things. And he says, write the things which you have seen, past tense, the things which are, present tense, that's chapters 2 and 3, which we will see are the letters to the seven churches of Asia Minor, and then the things which will take place after these things. That's chapters 4 through 22, the bulk of the book of Revelation, which is prophetic literature. Uh, John, uh, Jesus Christ is communicating to John the things which are going to take place. And, of course, uh, the book of Revelation being apocalyptic or prophecy or future things primarily, we see a lot of figures of speech. And as uh, Wes read for us through those paragraphs, you could see that in John's vision. He sees the Lord Jesus Christ, but the only way to describe him is in terminology, metaphors, which... Uh, convey what he saw. So we see that in verses 12 uh, through 16. And it was so powerful that John tells us in verse 17 that he fell at his feet as a dead man. He was overwhelmed. He was taken over by this vision of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so remember, when you get a little confused, go back to chapter 1, verse 19, the basic outline of the book of Revelation, the things which you have seen, chapter 1, the things which are, chapters 2 and 3, and then the things that are to come, which are chapters 4 through 22. But today, our uh, challenge and our our study is out of chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. And the Apostle John has been instructed to write seven letters, and they are the words of Jesus Christ to the seven churches of Asia Minor. It's not all the churches in Asia Minor, but these seven in particular. In chapter (coughs) 1, verse 11, he says, Write in a book what you see and send it to the seven churches to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Uh, Perhaps in the back of your Bible or in your Bible maps, if you have them on your uh, electronic device, uh, there will be a map of the seven churches of Asia Minor. In fact, now you can take tours, uh, tour groups take you to these different seven locations of these seven churches, and they teach you and explain to you the setting and the historical setting. And so the Apostle John is writing to Ephesus. Now remember that uh, the Apostle Paul wrote the Ephesian letter in about 61 or 62 A.D. to the church at Ephesus. Now 35 years have passed. It is now 96 A.D. John is in—he's uh, on the island of Patmos when he has this vision that Jesus Christ reveals to him, and he's recording it for us. And so the purpose today is that we would remember the original joy of our salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ, that we would repent of joyless religion or activity-related religion, and that we would reignite our passion for Jesus Christ. First, we have to identify the one whose evaluation of our life is the only one who counts. We need to remember that because the world is very good at telling us who we are, whether it's as Christians, as uh, men, as women, as educated, uneducated, as Uh, what we do and work the world is very good and very mean typically in telling us who we are but ultimately the only one that counts is the lord jesus christ and his evaluation of us do you wonder what jesus christ thinks of us what he thinks of those uh, of us who are involved in his church we make up his church we need to remember that we are the bride of christ we are vitally united with him for what he's done and what he is continuing to do. And we see the analysis here at the church of Ephesus in these verses, chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. This is the Lord Jesus Christ as he tells us what it's about. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write. Jesus is commanding John to write the following to the angel of the church at Ephesus. We know the angel. Angel simply means messenger. And most of the time when that word is used in the New Testament, it is referring to angelic beings uh, when we think of angels. But it also is sometimes used of human beings. And I take the position that he's to write to the messenger at the church of Ephesus, which would be the elders or the pastor. Uh, In these churches, in these seven churches, it's addressed to that. There's two understandings of this heavenly angelic guardian of the church or the pastor, prophet, elder is really what is preferred here. Uh, John is to write to this angel, in other words, in chapter 2, verse 1 in Ephesus. And he tells him then, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, he's introducing who is writing this letter which is a first-century common way of writing a letter. You introduce yourself first. The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says this. And uh, on the back of your bulletin, insert, I've included a chart of all of those descriptions that Jesus uses of himself to the seven churches so you can compare those. And they're, like I said, they are full of of figurative language, figurative speech, which gives us an idea of the magnificence and the worshipful deity that the Lord Jesus Christ is. And so it tells us that not only does Jesus Christ have power, he holds these stars in his hand, but he also has the presence. The seven stars are the seven angels. How do we know that? Well, from verse 20 of chapter 1, As for the mystery of the seven stars, which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. Remember, uh, we take the angels to be human beings who are messengers to the church. And the the seven lampstands are the seven churches, which makes sense. You think about a lampstand, it is to hold the light, and it was to illuminate the surrounding area. And you think of churches today, we are like a lampstand. We don't produce the light. The light is within us, as Jesus Christ says. We are the ones who allow Christ to shine in and through us to a very needy and a dark world. And so the lampstand is a metaphor for the church. And Jesus tells us at the end of chapter 1, that is what he is talking about. And so he walks among these lampstands, these seven churches. He, has, he is also the high priest, Jesus Christ, one of his ministry. Not only is he king and, high, and a great shepherd, he is the high priest of his church. And Christ walks in ministry. He is the one who carries out. He empowers us for works of ministry. In that, N.T. Wright, who is an Anglican uh, uh, theologian, he's written many books, very popular in this day, uh, but he was asked one time what he would tell his grandchildren or his children on his deathbed, and his words were, he would say, look to Jesus, look to Jesus, very simple words, but then he explained why, and let me quote N.T. Wright. He said the person who walks out of the pages of the Gospels out of Scripture to meet us is just central and irreplaceable. He is always a surprise. We never have Jesus confined to our pockets. He is always coming at us from different angles. If you want to know who God is, look at Jesus. If you want to know what it means to be human, look look at Jesus. If you want to know what love is, look at Jesus, and then go on looking until you're not just a spectator, but part of the drama that has him as the central character, unquote. And so we come to this passage, and we want to know what Jesus thinks of us and evaluates us. Now, the seven churches in the book of Revelation, there's been various ideas about what that means, and some think it's periods of church history in the last two thousand years but the bible doesn't tell us that it makes a nice neat package but uh, when since we interpret scripture historically we know they were written to first century churches in about 96 by the apostle john recording jesus's words to them in this vision and so there were historical churches but it has current practical application because as churches exist in the 21st century Uh, 2,000 years later, we are still prone to some of the problems and issues and adversities that these seven churches experienced. So we see, first of all, that Jesus Christ gives a commendation, a commendation in uh, five of the seven churches. He commends them. Uh, He, in a sense, congratulates them for some of the things they are doing. And this commendation from Christ, first of all, they have persevering minds. Look at verse 2. He tells them there, he's applauding them for their perseverance, for doctrinal diligence, doctrinal diligence. In verse 2, we see that he tells them, I know your deeds. I know your deeds. They're a serving church. They are involved in lots of deeds. There's action behind their doctrine, what their doctrine spurs action. Secondly, they are sacrificing He knows their toil, and that word there means to labor to exhaustion. That's the idea behind the word toil. He knows their toil, so they are a sacrificing church. They're willing to work hard. Thirdly, they are a steadfast church. Christ knows their perseverance. They are persevering, so they are steadfast. Fourthly, they are a separated church. Christ knows the exposure of false teachers by this church. In verse 2 there, he tells them that you cannot tolerate evil men, and you put the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false. And so they were applying doctrinal diligence, in other words, comparing what somebody would say that is an apostle or a teacher with the word of God and exposing the false teachers. And we are surrounded in the 21st century, if you watch the media, read the news, with false teachers pretending to be messengers of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so they were able to do that. In verse 3, they were applauded for their endurance in moral diligence. In verse 3, look at verse 3 with me. It says, And you have perseverance and have endured. They are a suffering church. They've persevered and endured for Christ's name. And then they're a steady church. They have not grown weary at the end of chapter 3. And so you have a serving church, a sacrificing church, steadfast church, separated church, suffering church, steady church. He is commending them for all of those things, the church at Ephesus. And then down in verse 6, more specifically, he commends them very specifically about the about their distinction about false teaching. Verse 6, yet this I have, uh, and yet... This you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Uh, Now, the Nicolaitans are only mentioned twice in Scripture, here in chapter 2, verse 6, and in chapter 2, verse 15, uh, when he addresses the church at Pergamon. And uh, we don't know who the Nicolaitans are. Uh, The Greek word, that's what this name comes from. It comes from two uh, combined words. One is nikao, which we get the word nike from, which means victory, or to conquer, and laos means people, or laity, so it means to conquer the people. And uh, Psalm 139 tells us, uh, the, David wrote there, Do not I hate those who hate you, O Lord, and do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with the utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. And the Nicolaitans were enemies of the early church. One of the early church fathers in about uh, the late second century, Irenaeus, he wrote these words, they were unrestrained in their indulgence of the flesh and practiced fornication and the eating of food sacrificed to idols, referring to the Nicolaitans. So we know more about them from uh, writings after the Bible was completed. And then Merrill Tenney, who wrote a great uh, commentary on the book of Revelation, writes this, the teaching of the Nicolaitans was an exaggeration of the doctrine of Christian liberty which attempted an ethical compromise with heathenism. And so uh, whatever it was, they were a detriment to the local church, and the church at Ephesus stood against them. These per- people were worthy of such praise for their tenace- tenacity, their faithfulness and the deeds they do. But Jesus says this. Look at verse 4. But I have this against you. But I have this against you. I always pay attention to that little connective term, B-U-T, but— because there is a contrast going on here. It is one of the ironies of ministry. Vance Havner wrote many years ago that the very man who works in God's name is often hardest to put to find time with Jesus Christ. When you think about it, Jesus' parents lost him at the church, and they were not the last ones to do that to him there And so we need to be careful. We can be like the church at Ephesus, serving, sacrificing, steadfast, separated, suffering, steady, and yet miss the whole point of what it means to be the church of Jesus Christ. And that brings us to the criticism, uh, the criticism that Jesus Christ brings or his condemnation. And it's a heart problem. They had persevering minds, but they had weak hearts. And it was a a coronary issue. Uh, In Uzbekistan, and I think most of us would have a hard time to take a map and find Uzbekistan, Uh, but there's a fishing village there called Munak, Munak, and it's basically a ghost town now. And why is that? Because it was on the shores of the RLC, A-R-A-L. And if you're familiar with the RLC, uh, today, according to a report in the Washington Post, it's a bitty, bitter, salty desert sand dunes are strewn with rusted and hollow ships perhaps you've seen some of those photographs there was once a fishing fleet that sailed on the rlc and now it's sitting in the desert rusting away that started to change 60 years ago when the soviet politburo uh, made a plan to divert the water that flew in uh, flowed into the rlc to other agricultural projects but nobody envisioned the environmental disaster that was to occur as a result Weather became more extreme there. The growing season was shortened by two months. Eighty percent of the region's farmland has been ruined by salt storms that sweep in off of this dry uh, seabed. What happened uh, at this little fishing village parallels the history of the church at Ephesus. Once a thriving spiritual community, the Ephesian believers, diverted their attention from Christ to works done in his name. They had lost sight of what was most important in their relationship with Jesus Christ, and that is their love for him. Quality ministry, and yet it neglected a quality relationship, and we are in danger of that also. If Jesus is against us, who can be for us to reverse a famous uh, passage of Scripture? There's condemnation by the Creator He identifies it as you. It's very specific, not only to the church of Ephesus, but each individual person in it. I have this against you. Oswald Chambers wrote that beware of anything that competes with loyalty to Jesus Christ. The greatest competitor of devotion to Jesus is service for him. Uh, We were warned, uh, one of my mentors always, in fact, he wrote a little book about spiritual frostbite. We can get so enmeshed in doing ministry and doing good things in these deeds, as the church at Ephesus did, uh, that we'll forget the reason why we're really doing them. It's like uh, Dr. Uh, Joe Stoll said, he can do the Christian life with one arm turned behind, uh, tied behind his back. And I think if you've been a believer very long, you understand what he was saying. And the fact is we can forget the one who makes it all possible and so the question in the second part of verse 4, look at verse 4, but I have this against you that you have left your first love. You have left your first love. Condemned for leaving the first love, indifferent or false affection, if it were. Uh, first is first in priority here. It's, uh, this word is of supremacy, and it's of preeminence. The believers forgot who was preeminent in their life. Maybe they had a priority about the church, but who is the one who is preeminent? Jesus is saying, you don't serve because you are driven by your love for me. You serve, uh, your love is not a priority. I am not supreme in what you do. This should give us all pause in the busyness of our lives. What's ironic about this is 35 years previously, the Apostle Paul, uh, (coughs) he commended the Ephesian believers in chapter 1 of Ephesians, verses 15 and 16, where he wrote, for this reason I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. So he commended him there, but now Jesus comes back and in thirty five years things have dramatically changed. God is Jesus Christ in all of Scripture is seeking and pursuing a love relationship with us. In the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 6, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. The great covenant concept in that Old Testament passage is that that word that is uh, the Hebrew word hesed, which means loving kindness. It means that grace kind of love that we see in the New Testament. Jesus, in Matthew 22, repeated that command, you shall love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. And so that is the highest calling we have. So what's the answer? What is the antidote to a loveless relationship, to a faded love? And Jesus gives us the cure or the correction in verse 5. Look at verse 5 where he tells us, Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Uh, Jesus Christ takes deep offense when we don't follow him, when he is not preeminent, when he is no longer a part of what we do. He is not our preeminent thing we do. The uh, question of utmost importance, I think, is why do you do what you do? I think it is a good question to ask ourselves in the quietness of the moments we have. Why do I do what I do? What is the reason for it? Is it out of a preeminent love for the Lord Jesus Christ, or is it simply just going through the motions. How do we resuscitate a passion? How do we resuscitate a passion, a heart that is weak, uh, that has grown cold to the Lord Jesus Christ? There are three R's, three R's in this verse. The first one is remember, to look back, have power, remember what, where we've come from. Oftentimes when we do the Lord's table, we were told there in, Cor- in Corinthians to remember the Lord Jesus Christ. And I always try when I'm preparing, I try to focus, what did Jesus Christ do? And now it's I'm going back further and further what Christ has done in my life personally. But each one of us need to remember how God rescued us, whether we were four years old or whether we were 40 years old, how Jesus Christ rescued us, and we need to remember. I was reading about a man who uh, grew tired of his commute Uh, to his country place, a long auto trip, and so he had an airplane, he was a pilot, and so uh, to get there quicker by his lake house, he put pontoons on his airplane, Uh, you know, it became a float plane for him, and he had the idea of equipping it so he could land right in front of his second home on the lake. However, on his first trip up to the country with his newly equipped airplane, he headed for the landing at the airport, where he always landed, and done in the past, and old habits seem to uh, be hard to break, don't they? As he was uh, approaching the landing, it dawned on his wife what was happening. And she hollered, what do you think you're doing? You can't land on the runway. You don't have wheels. You've got pontoons. And fortunately, her warning shout was in time. He pulled up and he la- went around the landing pattern and headed for the lake and landed safely on the lake and gave a big heaves, uh, heaved a big sigh of relief and turned to his wife and said, that's about the stupidest thing I've ever done. And then he opened the door, stepped out, and fell directly into the lake. (laughs) We can get so enmeshed in the moment that we forget the big picture, don't we? You know, there are a lot stupider things uh, than what he experienced. So remember to resuscitate your passion. Go back and remember. Read scripture. Remember what God used to bring you to the Lord Jesus Christ as a believer. Secondly, the second resuscitation R is repent from your ways. Repentance simply means to change one's mind in order to change one's direction. It's interesting, the word repentance in Scripture is primarily in the New Testament used of those who are already believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's used here that way, to repent. And it's addressing believers of the Lord Jesus Christ in that church, to repent. And then the third uh, resuscitation Plan not only to remember, repent, but reignite or repeat the deeds you did at first. He's not talking about the quantity of deeds; he's talking about the quality, the motive behind why we do what we do, the motive to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ, to serve Him wherever He calls us. Whether it's in a church ministry, whether it's in a ministry at your school or your workplace, your neighborhood, your family, whatever it is, remember. Repent and reignite. And the consequences, he's warning us. This is a warning passage when he tells us in verse 5, or else I'm coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. The consequences of failure, the corrector will come. He will remove the lampstand, the testimony of the church. There are many churches today around the land who really have no testimony of God's grace and mercy because they have not done these things and he has removed his lampstand. In fact, the church at Ephesus survived into the 5th century. It hosted one of the early church councils, the Council of Ephesus, in 451. But the city disappeared after the 5th century, and the city of Ephesus disappeared. It was uninhabited since the 14th century, and so the lampstand was removed. I think this is a metaphor that is saying, if you don't change, you will have a powerless experience in this world. If you want to do church without me, Jesus would say, good, you can have it, but the power is gone. No effectiveness, the darkness prevails. There's a story about a a two-year-old Canadian girl named Erica uh, who wandered out of uh, the house at night in the cold Edmonton winter. And she was out, and her mother finally found her. Her mother's name was Layla Nordby. Uh, The little girl, Erica, appeared to be totally frozen. Her legs were stiff. Her body was frozen. All signs of life appeared to be gone. She was treated at the Children's Health Center in Edmonton, and uh, through God and the help of the medical team brought her back to life. Uh, To the amazement of all, there appeared to be no sign of brain damage, and the doctors gave her a clear prognosis And soon she would just grow up to be a young lady as she was going to be. And some of us have wandered away from the Father's house, and it has brought us near the point of death. Our hearts are hardened. Our spiritual lives look as lifeless as the little girl in the snow. But Jesus Christ notices that we are missing and is searching for us. He never gives up on his people. He can take back lifeless spirits and restore us to spiritual health and take us back to where we're supposed to be. And in verse 7, there is a covenant. Verse 7, there's a covenant. There's a proposal from Christ and a promise from Christ. Verse 7, he who has ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He repeats this with every one of the seven churches. But the idea is, as we have ears, are we listening? Are we hearing what he's saying? And he says, to him who overcomes, I will grant to eat the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So if we can hear and discern what the Spirit is saying through his word, we are challenged to be overcomers. What does it mean to be an overcomer? Well, there are two uh, prevailing views of this. One is an overcomer is an every is every Christian is referred to as an overcomer because Jesus Christ is the overcomer, or enduring Christians. Uh, I don't. I think that's a popular teaching today that if you persevere in the faith, you will be an enduring Christian. But we know that believers uh, will all. Be able to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. You know, the experience of our first father, Adam, who's in Eden, the Garden of Eden. He had the privilege of the tree of life, but chose to eat from the wrong tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil in Ch- Genesis chapter 3. But we have the access to the tree of life in Re- Revelation 22 two. The tree of life first mentioned there in Genesis chapter 3 was in the Garden of Eden. Later it reappears in the New Jerusalem where it bears abundant fruit, Revelation 22, and those who eat it will never die. This promise should not be construed as a reward for a special group of Christians. We need to make that uh, clear. But to a normal expectation for all believers, the paradise of God is probably the name used for heaven in Luke 23, first Corinthians chapter, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And uh, it was identified with the new Jerusalem and the eternal state. And so his covenant, the proposal and the promise that we have a future and a hope. And oftentimes we don't think much about heaven, about life after this life, about eternal life. And yet it is coming. And we are have eternal life now if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. First love living occurs when we remember Christ, repent of our sin, reignite our passion, for the Lord Jesus Christ, as his preeminence dominates our life. I heard Tony Evans, Pastor Tony Evans, uh, one time uh, use this illustration. He said he went to Niagara Falls in New York, and uh, he see, noticed that he had a view out of his hotel room, and the falls were beautiful. They were very pretty and a beautiful view from the hotel room. And then they went down to the park bordering the falls, and it was a better view, and there were a few drops of mist falling on them from the falls. But then when they went on the little boat, the maid of the the mist, they got up close to the falls. They were drenched. They wore raincoats. And he explained that that is like first love living. Are we drenched with the power, the presence, the grace, the glory, and the goodness of Jesus Christ? That is the question for us today. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the almighty God and Lord Jesus Christ. This is your church. And uh, some of us perhaps have left our first love. You are no longer preeminent. And Lord, we desire that you would be preeminent in our lives. We pray that uh, our experiences are not like uh, watching church or you and from a hotel room or from the park, but that we are drenched in your grace and your mercy that we would refuse to settle for that hotel room view and the park experience, but, Lord, that we would put on our raincoats and our umbrellas and and venture into your presence as close as we can, that you would be preeminent in all that we are and all that we say. Uh, Your psalmist writes, The voice of the Lord is upon the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord is over many waters. May it be the voice that we hear and know and experience and your voice comes with power, and that we would have the full power and promises of God's presence so that we will get up close and go deep in our relationship with you, and that you would be honored and glorified. And, Lord, that we would remember we have a future and a hope in the Lord Jesus Christ, for it's in his awesome and powerful name we pray. Amen. Big face all is stripped away and I